Once upon a time. A long time ago. A very, very long time ago. Like before your parents were born. <laughs> there was a mystery. She was a great mystery. And nobody understood or appreciated her. Mainly because there was no one else around to appreciate or understand much of anything. For a long, long time, nothing happened. The great mystery waited. And waited. And waited some more. Until at last, she said, I'm bored. <laughs> and so the mystery set the stars in the heavens. And planets to circle the stars. And comets to wander to and fro. And it was all very beautiful. But after a couple of billion years of watching, the mystery decided it was still... Boring. The mystery was lonely. She wanted someone to play with. So she looked among all the stars and the planets. But some of the stars were... Too hot. And others were... Too cool. And some of the planets were... Too big. And others were... Too little. But finally, she found one that was... Just right. <laughs> the planet was covered with water. There were huge chunks of land sticking out. And even mountains and plains and rivers. Best of all, there were tiny, tiny creatures called protozoa. That lived and squirmed in the water. Come, play with me. The mystery said. But the protozoa kept on swimming like they hadn't even heard her. Which isn't surprising. Because they don't have ears. <laughs> and after another couple of billion years of watching the stars and planets and comets. And the squirming protozoa. The mystery is bored again. And then the mystery got an idea. She decided to glue some of the protozoa together with stuff called protoplasm. When they were stuck together, the protozoa began working together. They formed eyes and feet and mouths and stomachs. And ears. And they could see and move around and eat and digest. And hear me. But even if the new creatures could hear the mystery, they didn't pay much attention to her. Instead, they watched each other. And they moved around and ate and digested each other, too. <laughs> At least it was more interesting than watching the stars and the comets and all the planets. <laughs> it was m more interesting because as the new creatures watched and moved around and ate and digested... They changed. They grew. They evolved. And soon, there were all kinds of different animals. In the seas and on the land. And mountains and rivers. There were cows that said, moo. And sheep that said, bah. And three singing pig pigs said, la, la, la. No, 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 that's not right. Pigs oh. say, oink, all day and night. Oink. Oink. But the idea of singing pigs got the mystery thinking. Maybe some of the animals could use their mouths for singing or talking as well as eating. They would make great playmates. So she waited and watched the animals continue to evolve. And sure enough, after another bazillion years, she saw them. They were really funny looking. 
All their fur was stuck on top of their heads. And just a few other places on their bodies. And they walked on just two feet. Instead of all four, like most other creatures. But best of all, they could talk. They would be so much fun to play with. The new creatures had uh, problems, though. The new creatures didn't have any fur, so they were cold much of the time. They didn't have big teeth or sharp claws, so they had trouble getting food to eat. So the mystery gave them some ideas for making fires and growing crops. And for a while, everything went just great. The new creatures called themselves humans, which means from the earth. And for a long time, the humans lived in balance with the other creatures. The mystery enjoys watching the humans and giving them new ideas. But she was always careful to make sure that the humans never saw her or heard her directly. Because then she wouldn't be a mystery anymore. <laughs> the humans were curious, though, and wanted to know more about the mystery. Was the mystery at all human, like they were? Was the mystery male or female or something else entirely? Did the mystery care about them? Of course I do. If they prayed hard enough, would the mystery make their crops grow? Perhaps, but only if you take care of the earth. Or punish their enemies? I don't think so. Your enemies want me to punish you, but I won't do that either. <laughs> the humans had lots of other questions, too, like... Where do we come from? What are we supposed to do with our lives? Why do people get sick, suffer, and die? But the mystery was silent about these things. She knew that if she spoke to them, the humans would think that she was a god. A god like they wrote about in their books. But the mystery was greater than any god and far beyond anything the humans could imagine. She didn't want to terrify the humans. And besides, it's more interesting this way. More time passed and the humans kept evolving. They gathered themselves together in cities and built roads to connect the cities. They planted huge fields of crops and built machines to harvest the crops. And they built other machines for traveling on the roads. And they took the cows and sheep and pigs and penned them up to use for food. And they argued a lot about what they were supposed to be doing with their lives. But the mystery kept quiet, hoping they would figure it out for themselves. The humans kept building more cities and roads, more fields and more machines. Soon the world was filled with humans. There was no room for wild animals. The cows and sheep and pigs got more and more crowded in their pens. The humans were running out of room, too. Some thought there was no more room for mystery, either. When the mystery realized that the humans thought they had figured out everything for themselves, she became very sad. Some of the humans claimed that the mystery was angry, and if everybody didn't do what they said, she would destroy them. Others said that they didn't need mystery anymore. They could do fine on their own. It seemed that the humans were too busy building and arguing to play anymore. The mystery wanted to say something, but she knew her voice would terrify the humans. She also believed that they would argue about the meaning of her words. After all, they couldn't even agree on what thou shalt not kill or love your enemies meant. And besides, she knew that simply making the humans do what she wanted would take the fun out of playing. But maybe there was another way. The mystery knew that the humans wouldn't listen to her, no matter how loudly or clearly she spoke. Maybe instead of telling the humans what to do in a loud voice like thunder, she could use a softer voice like a whisper. 
Maybe instead of speaking to their ears, she should speak to their hearts. Maybe instead of using words, she could use feelings. And that is exactly what she did. If you listen very closely, you will hear what the mystery is saying to you. Don't listen with your ears. Listen with your heart. Think about what you feel when you consider this beautiful planet our home. Do you feel joy? Do you feel a sense of wonder? Do you feel thankful? Do you feel love? Each of these feelings is part of the mystery. Because each of us is part of the mystery. When we recognize and act on our feelings of joy, wonder, thanksgiving, and love, then the mystery will play with us and through us for a long, long time to come. Amen. Shalom. And blessed be. Now please rise as you are able and join with us in singing hymn number 313, Oh, what a piece of work we are. We'll just do the first verse, one verse. seated. So creation stories are both simple and complex. They tell us a version of how we came to be here, but they also tell us a way to think about where here is. On this Earth Day, the 48th since its founding as a national holiday in the United States, Let's think a little bit about the stories we tell about the Earth and our relationship to her. Genesis says that God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the Earth. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. For many years, this passage from the book of Genesis was used to justify our dominion over the world and frequently our dominion over each other. To fill the earth and subdue it, that is indeed a fair description of the last 500 years of human history. Taken out of context, this story puts humanity, and probably the humanity reading it, at the top of a hierarchy, unable able to do whatever we wish to the earth without real consequences. When I hear these verses, it makes me think of the worst of colonialism, where ownership and hierarchy is taken for granted and resources are used fast and not for the benefit of all. This isn't the only way to think about our relation to the planet, though. By the time Earth Day was founded, theologians, ecologists, philosophers were starting to think that dominion wasn't actually the best 
word to sum up our relationship to the earth. Stewardship became the new watchword. We could spend 15 minutes uh, this morning on how stewardship uh, might actually be a better translation of the Hebrew ratha in Genesis, but this is an all-ages service, so we'll, we'll keep that for next year. What does it mean to be a good steward? It means more than anything else to extend care beyond our own lives, to care for something beyond yourself. It requires thinking about time and space in broader ways than our own lives. When we talk about stewardship of this church, for instance, we talk about how it's a home for generations, how we have inherited this community from those who have gone before and hold it in trust for those yet to come. It is the same with thinking about our stewardship of the planet. We don't inherit from our parents. We borrow from our children. So to be stewards of the world is to act with care, conserving and passing down. It means appreciating the gift that we have been given that we are in charge of for just these short years of our lives. There's a strain of environmentalism that arises from this notion of stewardship. The, the National Park Service is a good example. Resources held in trust for the collective and for future generations. So is the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, our push for renewable energy all of this is designed to, to save the planet, to keep its environment safe and welcoming for those who come after. We do not have dominion over the world, what could possibly be more arrogant than that, but perhaps we are its stewards. This building is a, is a living example of that stewardship. It's an example of stewardship of this community, building a beautiful place that will be here for our children and an example of stewardship for the world, incorporating solar and geothermal systems to use power responsibly. And it's worth asking now if stewardship is enough. 20 years ago, on uh, Earth Day of 1998, Professor Michael Mann of the, the University of Massachusetts Amherst published an article in the journal Nature showing the Earth's temperature over the last 500 years. It's, it's relatively stable until 1900, and then it spikes up very, very quickly. The hockey stick graph, as it became known for its shape, placed awareness of human-caused climate change squarely at the forefront of environmentalism. That was 20 years ago. So if we humans collectively were called to be good stewards of the earth, we haven't always done a great job of it. We're going to pause for a moment to have another story, and then we will pick up this reflection afterwards. This is a brief story, so I'll have you remain in your seats today. That is our new projector. And we're going to try out our new projector. 
<laughs> Our story comes from author and illustrator Shim Shimmel and is entitled Children of the Earth Remember. Somewhere in the deepest black velvet of space, there spins a brilliant blue world. From afar, this world looks like a lovely blue and white clouded marble. But the closer we get, the more colors we see, reds and browns and yellows and all shades of green. There are many worlds spinning through space, but this one is special. This is no ordinary world. There are animals on this world, billions of animals, more animals than all the twinkling stars of the night sky. And all the animals are the children of this world, and we call their mother, this beautiful planet, Mother Earth. The animals are not alone on Mother Earth. There are people living there too, billions of people, more people than all the twinkling stars in the night sky, and all of these people are children of Mother Earth too. So the animals and the people and Mother Earth are all one big family. And the dolphins play, and the birds sing, and the deer dance, and the people love. In the deepest black velvet of space spins the family of Mother Earth and the animals remember. They remember Mother Earth before there were people. They remember how all the forests were thick and green and lush, how the oceans and rivers and lakes were pure and crystal clear, how the sky was such a brilliant, brilliant blue. And the animals remember when they saw the first people. In the beginning, very few, but soon more and more and more until there were people everywhere on Mother Earth. And still, there were more animals than people, and the people shared Mother Earth with the animals. And the people knew that the animals were their sisters and brothers, and they knew they were all part of one big family. And the animals and the people were the eyes and ears and heart of Mother Earth. So when dolphins played, Mother Earth played. When birds sang, Mother Earth sang. When deer danced, Mother Earth danced. And when people loved, Mother Earth loved too. Time passed and more people were born, more and more and more people until finally there were more people than animals and the people forgot. They forgot to share the land and water and sky with the animals. They forgot that the animals were their sisters and brothers. They forgot that they were all part of the one big family of Mother Earth. The people forgot. But the animals remembered, and they knew they would have to remind the people. So every day, our sisters and brothers remind us. And when the dolphins play, people remember. And when birds sing, people remember. And when deer dance, people remember. And when people remember, they love. Remember. Remember. It's a strange thing to be preaching on Earth Day, 2018. One of the clearest memories of my childhood was the annual Earth Day assembly at University Elementary School in Bloomington, Indiana. It would have been the, the late 80s and early 90s. The school got together every single Earth Day for the entire afternoon in the school auditorium to talk about deforestation and the ozone layer. 
My first public speaking role, the beginning of my career, uh, was as a tree in a play about the rainforest. <laughs> sheltering golden tamarinds from loggers. We ended the assembly every year by singing in unison, uh, we are the world. I can still, to this day, sing along every line of it. And at the time, it felt doable. We would take better care of this planet, we would be good stewards, and to an extent, we've addressed some of the issues that we were talking about then. CFC regulations have improved the situation with the ozone layer. Deforestation continues to be a problem, but not at the rate it was 30 years ago. But that paradigm, that way of approaching the problem, has failed to halt or really slow down ongoing climate change. It's stewardship, but, but stewardship that has some of the same assumptions of that idea of dominion, that we are the most important piece of the system, that we alone, as first world nations, have both the power and knowledge to fix things. Climate change, the challenges of 2018, require different ways of thinking. So if stewardship hasn't been enough, if we have forgotten that we are a part of the whole family of living things, what might be another way to look at it? In the 1970s, an English scientist named James Lovelock started to write about what he called the Gaia hypothesis. Lovelock was a, a biologist. He was interested in emergent properties. And when he started to think about the, the cycles and species that made up the Earth's biosphere, he started to wonder if there was a whole larger than the sum of its parts. Humans are made up of cells, millions of individual living things making up a single life. In the same way, maybe we could think about the biosphere of a planet as being a collective life form made up of billions of individual creatures from plankton to peregrine falcons, carpenter ants to Aunt Linda. This idea of Gaia, thinking of creation, the, the living things of the world as a single life rather than separate is a rich one theologically as well as scientifically. It was quickly picked up by religious thinkers not, co not coincidentally, some of the richest writing about it comes out of the liberation theologians of Brazil, where theologians grapple with the consequences of theologies of dominion in the Amazon rainforest. They started to combine this idea of ecology with this idea of liberation. So you get Leonardo Boff writing Cry of the Earth, Cry of the Poor, and eventually, my prop has disappeared. <laughs> the current pope writing an encyclical on climate change and inequality. Together as one issue, this idea that we are all tied together and we can't anymore focus on one group of privileged folks or position in order to deal with the problems that we face. This is also a part of Unitarian Universalism the, the seventh principle, the last in the sequence expanding from the individual to the collective, 
calls us to respect the interconnected web of all existence of which we are a part. What does Gaia do for us that moves us beyond stewardship? First, it gets us away from the arrogance of ownership. While stewardship is a good development from dominion, it still assumes that we, humans, have a privileged place in creation. Yes, we have had an outsized and largely negative impact on the world over the last 500 years, but chances are the planet will outlive us. If we are a part of Gaia, instead of having dominion or stewardship over the rest of life, then we can be honest about what it is we're doing. We're fighting to stop or slow down climate change, not because we have dominion or out of altruistic stewardship, but because we are, as the song says, making a choice, we're saving our own lives. We are self-interested. We may be part of something greater than ourselves, so there is self-interest in saving it. But there is also joy, as Annie Dillard reminds us. We are here to abet creation and to witness it, she writes, to notice, notice each thing so that each thing gets noticed. Together, we notice not only each mountain shadow and each stone on the beach, but we notice each other's beautiful face and complex nature so that creation need not play to an empty house. I believe we are creation playing to itself. We are here so that there will be people to play with. Life endures. Life requires all of us to band together and say, we're going to fix this thing. Not because it's our job to fix it, but because we're part of it. And what harms one harms everyone. And what helps one helps everyone. Creation need not play to an empty house. Let us bear witness to that this morning. Amen. Our final hymn is for the earth forever turning. Which is number 163 